I'm Asher Miller. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Jason Bradford. Welcome to Crazy Town, where three middle-aged white guys mansplain racism. This is producer Melody Travers. In this season of Crazy Town, Jason, Asher, and Rob are exploring the watershed moments in history that have led humanity into the cascading crises we face in the 21st century. Today's episode is about the surreal invention of racism, its use in justifying slavery, and the socioeconomic shitshow that followed. The watershed moment took place in the year 1453. At the time, the estimated carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was 281 parts per million, and the global human population was 371 million. Rob, Jason, I got a question for you. If you could give yourself a title, okay, and it didn't have anything to do with anything you've actually accomplished or anything real about you, what titles would you pick for yourselves? This is sort of like Wicked Witch of the West or something like that. Like we we have a... Do you a, want to be the witch, Wicked Witch of the West? <laughs> no, no. But uh, unfortunately, my mind went to uh, things I've heard other people call me. I'd be like... They've called you that? Like No, but I'd be like Colonel Dipshit, sarcastic <laughs> bastard from the South or something like that. Oh. Yeah. Well, I, that's a long title. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> apropos. But anyhow... Um, <laughs> so you're going to call me Colonel Dipshit for the rest of this show. <laughs> I'll think about it. Well, I have a question. Uh, share come clarification. It's a, it's a on secret the ingredient. Yeah. yeah um, can I be called a laird? The Scottish term for oh, laird. Yeah. Is that okay? Is that is that similar to lord? Yeah, it's lord, but it's Scottish. And Got it. I'm doing this because my wife was really into this um, Outlander books. Oh and yeah, stuff like that, and uh-huh. then. Uh, there's that show, the TV show that came out. Yeah. And she kind of got a little I, bit into that. I, I was thinking a better one for you is Teared, kind of like for turd. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. But I would be, oh my gosh, you know, I used to walk around calling her Aisasanak. And uh, she liked that. Anyhow, I get a little, little personal. Okay, so, <laughs> so Teared, uh, Lord Teared and uh, Colonel Dipshit at your no, service, I'd be, I guess. I'd be, I'd be Laird McDongle. McDongle. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh well, uh, I guess we got to, wh- wh- why do you ask? <laughs> I, I got, you didn't ask me what I would be called. Yeah, yeah, what would you be called? Lord Douchebag, of course. <laughs> well, that's been done. Lord and Lady Douchebag. <laughs> Rise in New York, it's Saturday night! Okay, the real reason I bring it up is because I wanted to introduce somebody to you guys, Okay. Sweet. Henry the Navigator. And uh, as far as I know, Henry the Navigator never actually sailed, set sail on the Atlantic. I think the guy's been on a boat, but you know, yeah. calling him a navigator might be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, as I understand it, he was basically a financier. Never went on a voyage, just paid for them. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to his story. I'm probably being a little unfair you know, to diss him for that name since he was given the name like centuries after the guy died. Oh. You know, okay. oh, he he um, didn't like promote himself as no. the navigator. But then again, I don't feel so bad because the guy was an evil bastard. So, uh, <laughs> so fuck him. Really. Okay. Um, <laughs> but here's why he's important. I want to talk about him before we get to our watershed moment today. So, Prince Henry the Navigator. Okay, Ooh, let's go back in time. Prince. Yep. He was the third son, I think, of a king, and then he became the uncle of a of a king. 
he's probably he's arguably the most influential figure behind well behind a lot but behind portugal's sort of short-lived global empire. Now, well, wait a second. If, if it's arguable, let's talk about Cristiano Ronaldo for a second. Yeah, so here. that's the second empire. I'm talking <laughs> about the first empire. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, now, maybe some people are still learning about this in school, but at one point, this tiny little country, Portugal, was the dominant force on, on the seas. Mm-hmm. Um, and Henry had a huge role to play behind that. He made a huge amount of money. Like one of the things he did was he had like a monopoly on the manufacturing of soap. Hmm. Um, <laughs> that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what kind of soap it Back was. Back to basics. I love it. And, you know, what he did was he actually used a lot of, of the wealth that he accumulated to finance both the invention of new sailing technologies, new sails, new types of ships, which are really key in actually being able to net, to to, um, to cross the Atlantic or go further down the Atlantic, huh. and uh, so he, he he in his day was like the uh, these billionaires today that are launching rockets to space. Yeah, he's like the Elon he's, Musk. He was of launching the 15th really century. nice boats. Yeah, yeah. He um, didn't really go on him much, but he invented a bunch of stuff related to him. Right, and he That's also cool. you know he was a, I think uh, the originator of the first sugar plantations, which had. A really profound role in the history of certainly the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, um, Halloween. You know. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, and the formations of the first colonies in the North Atlantic and in the Western coast of Africa. But the reason I actually want to bring him up was because of his role in the creation of the African slave trade. Oh, that's a downer. Yeah, I know. That's <sighs> what I was saying. Like, fuck the guy. You know, if uh, if I insult him a little bit. But here's the thing. It's not actually Henry so much I want to talk about. I mean, Henry had a huge role to play, obviously. But it's this guy. His, his name is Gomez Yanis de Zurara. Okay, I'm mispronouncing his name. I don't even... I'm trying to give a Spanish pronunciation, but I wouldn't even know how to give him a Portuguese pronunciation. Ever heard of this guy? No. Rings a bell, but you're, you know, there's so many uh, loose fragments of 80s movies floating around up here. Yeah. That, yeah. Right. Yeah, he's it's not it's from, on you to bring it up. He, he's not from the, he's not a 1980s villain. He's not any of that stuff. Okay. okay. So we're he going didn't fight, uh, he didn't fight Rocky one time. No. And he wasn't in, uh, <laughs> he wasn't in, you know, WWE or WWF or any of that stuff. <laughs> no. no, back in 1452. Okay. The King of Portugal charged Zurara, who's like the chronicler of the, you know, of, of, uh, the kingdom or whatever to document the life of his uncle, right? The King's uncle, Prince Henry. And it was in that book, the Chronicle of the Discovery and Conquest of Guinea. It's just a, a, I mean, you could get it at any bookstore, I think, these days, right? It's just flying <laughs> off the shelf. Right. Um, and now, Guinea, I should just say, Guinea was the term the Portuguese came up with to describe lands in Africa that were south of the, I guess, the Senegal River. Oh, know, it's right? a so, huge area then. Yeah. And it was in that book that the historian, as the historian Ibram Kendi argues, that racism was first invented. So it's invented in a biography of this guy, Henry. Yeah. Interesting. So that's, I, I realize where this is ringing a bell from. So a few years ago, I know you listened to it as well as Cher. I can't, Jason, maybe you did too. We listened to the Seeing White series from a, a podcast called uh, Seen on Radio. Yeah, great series. And um, basically the host, John B. when he relied a lot on Ibram Kendi's work and, and kind of explored racism, uh, how the the institution developed in the United States and the sort of power dynamics involved there. And so, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a, definitely a new thing to me. And I, I, de- I highly recommend that podcast. Yeah. And so, you know, Kendi and others have argued that 
it was Zerara's depiction of Africans as, as sort of innately inferior to Europeans that was used as a justification, and I think this is the key thing, after the fact for what was really motivated by greed. Like it was so, a justification for why th- these Africans were enslaved. So the Portuguese were already over there kidnapping people, tearing up families, doing their their evil shit. Yeah, and then and- they came up with, hey, there's a reason why this is okay. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, this was, again, very early days that this was happening, that this, that this biography was written. But that, that's the thing I think I wanted to, to sort of explore today in this, well, in what this about watershed the, moment. What about the Pope? Wasn't the Pope involved in some of this stuff, too? Oh, yeah, the Pope definitely has a role to play in this. Um, and we're going to actually be talking about, about the Pope later. Okay. Have to wait for that. Okay, well, this is, I'm, I'm really comfortable talking about race and stuff. This is a really easy, <laughs> relaxing subject for me. Jeez, uh, okay. But, you know, what's fascinating to me is um, this after-the-fact justification thing that is happening at the society level, right? It's the same thing that happens in the human mind. Hmm. The mind will narrate an explanation for what, what has been done, and it will just make stuff up. Right, to try uh, to make sense of something. To make sense yeah. of something. So our our subconscious is generating all sorts of, of motivations for us that lead to behavior. And we're kind of unaware of them a lot of the time. But then our, our so-called rational mind essentially rationalizes like, oh, we did this because all to make us make us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> you know, Jason, you had a conversation with me a few years ago that this is bringing up in my mind. You were talking about helping people transition from conventional farming to organic. And you you had said, it's not that you explain that organic is better for reason X, Y, and Z, and then somebody's going to change their mind and do it. It was more like, oh no, let's start farming organically. Here's the field and they start doing it. And then they come up with all the reasons themselves yeah. to justify it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like uh, behavior change, then the thinking changes. Yeah, I will. I, I think that that's true. And I think it's a really interesting parallel to make. I am not going to give Zurara and these guys <laughs> as much credit for the motivation behind this justification because it was a and this is what we're going to talk about, it was an ongoing belief system that became, that was built in a justification for exploitation and the most inhumane treatment of others that's probably imaginable, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, let's not give them any credit. And to uh, demonstrate that, we've got some poll quotes from that uh, book that you mentioned that's, that's, that's just flying off the shelves. Sure, right? let's hear them. So uh, obviously these are translated from the original language, but... This one just reminded me of you, Jason. Here's Zurara <laughs> talking about uh, how awesome Prince Henry, what is it? Henry the asshole? Henry the navigator. Henry, right? yeah. Same thing. Uh, this yeah. noble prince was of good height and stout frame, big and strong of limb. <laughs> Strength of heart and keenness of mind were in him to a very excellent degree. <laughs> the the flowery yeah. uh, nature of these uh, it goes on. and beyond comparison he was ambitious of achieving great and lofty deeds so <laughs> so maybe the uh, nickname you got for yourself could it fit a description like that yeah Laird McDongle right you know when they buried Zarrar they can get that brown stain off of his nose you know? <laughs> what's amazing is how much harder it was to write back then but how he was just going on with a bunch of bullshit right. anyway right, right. the 
I still I, I like that the lofty deeds of Lord McDongle. That sounds like a really good. Uh, <laughs> that book is going to fly off the shelf too. <laughs> so uh, and of course these flowery, over the top descriptions of Henry are juxtaposed with his just horrendous descriptions of the folks from Africa. And I, I can't. I'm not even going to read them because fuck enough. that guy. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Well, what I, I think it'd be interesting to talk about this. Bring it to the U.S. and and put put what happened here in some kind of historical context. Because in the U.S., slavery and racism are closely linked, right? Yeah, sure. yeah. But slavery didn't start in the 1400s, right? It, it's it ex- existed across the globe for as long as we can go back in well, history and check on things. Again, it began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away yeah. when the job of the hut chained up Princess Leia. I mean, yeah, evidence right there. <laughs> it's like universal. So there's evidence of slavery across Europe, across Asia, across Africa, the Americas, as far back as anyone can can look, this stuff was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even that word slavery, if you look at the root of it, and my Latin teacher would be proud of me here, uh, it comes from Slav, which is the name that the, the Western Europeans gave to the Eastern European people. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and, and they, they had were, been sold into slavery right. following repeated conquests. Right. Yeah, and, and that, yeah, that's my point. Historically, slavery was typically the result of some sort of conquest, and you'd capture people. And and even though you know there may have been, there may have been religious differences— between people that were fighting each other, racism wasn't used as a justification for enslaving people. Yeah. Until our friend... Uh, Zurara. Zurara. Yeah. Well, we know from basically every episode of Crazy Town that there's always nuance, there's always complexities here. It's not cut and dry that Zurara is the inventor of, of racism. Some academics, uh, there's one, this guy Benjamin Isaac, who's got a book called The Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity, who has uh, presents some evidence that, that racism existed in Europe, uh, going back to ancient Greece. You know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint, but, but Zurara is a really good example of, of someone who popularized right. racism in, in Portugal and exported that to other yeah, countries. Yeah, I'm too. sure that the history is, is a lot more nuanced and messy and complex. And, and, and I think that trying to pinpoint the source, you know, the origin story of racism is actually not really, I, I think, the point here. The point is for why I think Zarara's writings in 1452 are such a watershed moment is that they reflect what became and maybe even inspire what became the merger of these sort of two dominant systems, right, that really shaped the world and were part of what brings us to crazy town where we are now, these two dominant systems of racism and the exploitation of people. Yeah, so using it as a justification, bringing bringing the two together. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, before we talk more broadly about how racism has led us into crazy town, let's just put sort of this African slave trade into context a little bit. So first of all, there were about 12 and a half million men, women, and children of African descent that were forced into the transatlantic slave trade. It's 12 and a half million people on these little boats at the time, right? Coming across the the Atlantic Ocean. Just like rounded up in their homeland and put on boats and sailed away. It's just astonishing. That's a lot. Well, and that's... this topic is really hard. I, I have this visceral moment of remembering from childhood, seeing that 
illustration of how to pack a, yeah. a slave boat. Oh, and, yeah. you know, to say put on a boat is such a, an understatement. I mean, the conditions, the, uh, the breakup of families, the, it just, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, obviously our shtick here is we, uh, make light of things and we joke a lot with each other, but some of these topics, it's, ah, it's just so, uh, depraved and, uh, you know, you, you can't believe that we're capable of doing this to, to each other. So yeah, this is a, it's a tough one. I mean, the, the, uh, just looking back at the history of it, uh, maybe throw a few more stats around on it. That slave trade grew pretty slowly before 1600, but like everything, you have this uh, sort of the economic incentives really pushed them. So you had sugar spreading around, you had tobacco plantations, uh, later you would have cotton, but thanks to the profits you could earn from these commodities that they're like, hey, we need more labor. Hey, uh, we can exploit the shit out of these people. And, and, uh, and hey, we can justify it with these uh, ridiculous racist ideas. Yeah. And what's fascinating also to think about is Congress eventually banned the importation of slaves in 1808. However, the slave population in the U.S. just kept growing from a little over 1 million in 1810, according to census data, to nearly 4 million in 1860. And that represented over 10% of the entire U.S. population. Yeah. But of course, the slave-owning states definitely had, had the majority of that. So there were some places that were really dominated by slave populations. And there are some stunning maps published by Smithsonian Magazine that, that go over this, and we, we'll link to those in our show notes. Yeah, there's these um, these visuals showing kind of uh, population density, yeah. you know, over and changes over time, and including the spread west, you know, well, as, as the, the U.S. grew. Yeah, I mean, you can talk about uh, the Atlantic slave trade sort of ending, but then there was a within-continent slave trade that was thriving. I mean, of yeah. course, you had whatever people being born and the population increasing, but you also had people moving slaves all around up and down the eastern seaboard. And as you said, share moving them out west. Yeah. There was a fascinating studies on the economics of this where the southern states were actually not very profitable from a agricultural perspective. And they were really depleting the soils and so the yields were poor and, you know, synthetic fertilizers and hadn't really been invented, at po- of course, at this point. So there was marginal to, to this negative income on a lot of their crops. And so they were all, you know, excited about their ability to sell slaves. And that was a huge part of politics in the U.S. Yeah, and I just will mention briefly, we're, we're spending a lot of our time talking about the U.S. You know, more um, more Africans were were stolen from Africa as part of the slave trade and sent to Brazil, even than the United States. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't obviously isolated to, to the yeah, U.S. Yeah, the, the Caribbean islands yeah. as well. You know, I, I think obviously we could spend a lot of time talking about this and probably not doing it anywhere near justice. But I think, again, just trying to put this a little bit into context, I think it's important to to remember that even after slavery ended in the U.S., you know, the impact of slavery and obviously more broadly the impact of systemic racism against black Americans, that legacy is alive with us 
to this day, sadly, you only have to look at the disparities in health and education, wealth, incarceration rates, disenfranchisement, exposure to pollution, on and on and on and on to see how much it remains still very much embedded in the in the American experience. Yeah, there's a historian, David Rodiger. He has this quote that sums up, I think, what you're talking about really nicely. He says, quote, The world got along without race for the overwhelming majority of its history. The U.S. has never been without it. When I read that quote, I I also found this graphic that shows, you know, basically breaks down how long the U.S. has had slavery, Hmm. then how long it was in the Jim Crow era with segregation, and then the post-segregation civil rights to now. And that, the the current era is a pretty small piece of our history. And that's why we are in this, you know, this time that we are now where you have systemic racism still running rampant. Yeah, like land ownership, for example, and all of the, you know, giving away land. The US government did that for for settlers, but it was very hard if you were an African American to get that free land and establish as a farmer, for example, and and create Mm -hmm. that family wealth. And more recently, the GI Bill and um, And there are, there are organizations that do a really great job of documenting some of these disparities and, yeah. uh, that are, are worth looking at, and we can, we can reference those. Well, well, I, I grew up on the West Coast of, of America, and you know, for, for me, what's interesting is there's a whole history there that is not just limited to the African-American experience of racism— but we had a whole set of immigrants coming across the Pacific, and we had a lot of issues in how we dealt with, with those folks as well. Yeah, there's some good stats on this, too. Like between the 19th and 20th centuries, there were over 600 separate pieces of anti-Asian legislation that got passed that were limiting citizenship opportunities for, mm-hmm. for Asians. They had almost no rights, and uh, white people could could kill Asians basically with impunity because they couldn't testify in court. Oh, <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's unbelievable. You start digging into, into this history. Yeah. Oof. Well, I think thinking about racism in the larger context, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've spoken a lot about the history of the slave trade and, and the impact of that, you know, in the United States, I think it's interesting to, to think a little bit about whiteness. So, Rob, you you referenced that podcast series. Yeah, Seeing White. Seeing White that we'd recommend to people. Thinking about what it means to be white and and how there have been changing definitions of what it means to be white over time in the United States. Um, The professor, a writer and scholar named Dorothy Roberts, has written a lot about this in a book called Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. But Part of what she talks about in that book is not just what's happening now, but looking at the history of of changes in how we define race over time. She points out that since the very first U.S. census was taken in 1790, the racial groupings in the census have changed 24 times <laughs> so, know, over about 200 years. So we have a shift here then from the heinousness of racism to the ridiculousness of racism and uh, the the mental gymnastics that people will perform in order to whatever hang on to their privilege or their power so so i don't give me some examples of this uh, who is white in the us yeah i mean so if you think about it like people that are now considered white like for me me for example right 
I'm I'm Jewish, half American, half Dutch Jew, basically, right? But I, I f- can I interrupt you yeah. first? I have a funnier story. I <laughs> uh, a, a few years ago, a child that I know was talking about you because I was working with you, and uh-huh. this child said, uh, "Oh, are you going to see that Indian guy?" Because <laughs> it was it was summer, I guess. Oh, I had a tan. And oh, yeah. a tan and oh, I'm so jealous. Which, I, I tan nicely. I oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I your hair, it your was, hair, just. It was one of those examples of like uh, the meaninglessness of skin color, right. you know. My uh, my <laughs> Semitic roots coming out. Um, but uh, what I was saying is like now, if I fill out census, I got an, what, essentially one option, right? Like yeah. white non-Hispanic. Yeah, that wasn't always the case for Jews in the United States. You know, being considered part of white America, and it's the same thing is true. You look at. You know, Irish, Italians. So there's not uh, a thing in the census that says space laser wielding Jew as one <laughs> no, of the races. No. I mean, if Marjorie Taylor Greene becomes you know president someday, that may change. All right, <laughs> let's see what happens. Right. I don't think she's in line. I think she's going to be um, chief justice of the Supreme Court. Is uh, her, her next political oh, right. move? But. Yeah, so think about that. Like you, Jason, yeah. you must be so conflicted inside. I mean, uh, you know, your lineage, you go right back to the Mayflower, so yeah. as white as white can be. Yeah. But you also, what, you have Italian in your family and maybe some Irish, right? I do, yeah. So, you know, we call those um, bog trotters, the, the <laughs> Irish side, and uh, spaghetti slurpers on the Italian side. And, um, and we, yeah, we, yeah, they got together and they made, they, they made me, you know, so. Yeah. and uh, it was- can, can we just reference where that's from? <laughs> For, for a second, <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, God. What is it called? The racial slur database. <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a real thing that we found on the dot uh, org on the internet. Yeah, uh, good lord. Yeah, those uh, are some of the nicer ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know who's behind that project. That's, yeah, that's a little. That's a little odd. Yeah. Well, you know. So, how did that happen? How did all these folks? Uh, uh, the Italians, the Irish, the Slavs, and the Jews, they, they became white. Well, in some ex- some respect, you know, we, America was called this sort of melting pot, and you would adopt American culture. So I think there was a tremendous pressure for these these folks as they come out as immigrants, right? And they don't speak English necessarily, but then their kids' generation starts adopting the whatever the American culture is of the time. And because they you know, they kind of look white. They get granted this sort of entry into whiteness, I think, is what's going on. Yeah, there's a, a pressure, a desire, a benefit of assimilation, right, yeah. to kind of like, a, quote unquote, white culture and and sort of passing as white. I mean, not to say that this was like part of my experience, but I was an immigrant kid. I, I moved to the United States when I was, you know, six years old and coming from Israel. It had a what people thought was a funny name and I had a funny accent and I just want to assimilate so badly. I refuse to speak Hebrew anymore at home. Yeah. I changed my name to Steve. Did because, you? Yeah. For like, for a couple months or something This is like a that. reveal. Yeah. Because I wanted so much to fit into U.S. culture. The reason I changed my name to Steve is because it was Steve Austin, the $6 million man. Oh. I got to see him on TV. I was going to say, but not God. Steven, but Steve. Steve. Yeah, that exactly. That's good. Yeah. You could, I mean, just a small example. That was maybe cool. That when hurt. he changed his name, he could suddenly see uh, yeah. like a mile and down you the hear road. That sound. Yeah. He could jump over buildings. Yeah, and, and, and I he, love that show. Plus, plus, he got to go on dates with the bionic woman. Oh, she. Oh. Yeah. 
I don't know why I ever changed my name back. <laughs> I've got deep regret. Did, you didn't. Uh, were you down at the courthouse with a legal process as <laughs> no. a six-year-old? Actually, what I ended up his eye, Steve. <laughs> you can imagine my family for a while were like scratching their heads. You know? uh-huh. They try to laugh it off a little bit, and then right. eventually you give them credit. They're like, "Okay, this is what he wants to do." They actually started calling me Steve, and by that, and at that point, I was like, "No." Just for, it was too weird to hear your mom and dad say Steve. So you, you were you were back yeah. to a chair. Um, I, I, again, I want to point out this, if we think about you know we we talked a little bit about racism more broadly in the United States, right? Not being limited to the African African American Black experience, yeah. but also dynamic more broadly. Yeah. I think we also have to point out the obvious, which racism is ubiquitous across the world, right? I yes. mean, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It has a particular, I would say, a particular role within in within American society that that is deep and profound, right? Yeah. That's unique. But it's not like it doesn't exist in other places, you know, yeah. and it manifests itself in really ugly ways in many, 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 many places. Yeah, many have pointed out that, that first you have these religious reasons, right? That we're, we're, the Pope declares this is okay or whatever. And, but then, of course... As, as society changes and you get sort of the enlightenment period, suddenly science or the, to- the so-called tools of science start getting used as justification for racism. They needed a new justification, right? You couldn't yeah. say this was God's will that, right. that this group of people were subservient or could be enslaved or could be treated like crap, right? right. You had to have another justification. Right. So if you get into the 1800s, that starts to become more and more important in the early 20th century. Yeah, well, you know, Jason, you're a man of science, Thank right? You. I yes. mean, Thank you. we know uh, you are uh, uh, Dr. Jason Bradford, PhD. Thank you. Oh, you know, that's not his real title, remember? Piled higher and deeper. Right. He's Laird. Yeah, oh, sorry. yeah. Laird McDongle, Dr. PhD. Laird. Dr. Laird McDongle. <laughs> Well, and we know also. I, I, I've hung out with you enough that I know you. You know, you're a plant biologist. You're you. running around tropics, uh, looking at what was it, the Cunaceae family? The, sorry, the Cunoniaceae. Cunoniaceae. Yeah, he's always name dropping these Latin names for. Well, for you got a, You shit. got you got one named after you, right? Like the Cunoniaceae Bradfordii. No, no, Gaisois Bradfordii, endemic to New, <laughs> New Caledonia or Nouvelle Caledonie. <laughs> You're, you're making you're a colonist. My, you're making the argument even better. You know all this stuff. Well, yes. so you you know this whole uh, scientific classification. That's the Linnaean system, right? Named yes. after uh, Carl or Carolus Linnaeus. Yes, uh, I know all about we, that. Yes, I use it. Yeah, we did a little uh, looking, and uh, you know, yeah, oh, so- Linnaeus. By the way, he described the the genus that I first got into this with Weinmania was described by Linnaeus. So okay. I, I have I have a direct kind of your like, um, your origin story. You're gonna feel I have sad like an about origin story. So like Linnaeus and I were kind of tight, right? Yeah, great. Well, uh, so as soon as you start, you know, looking under the 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 first layer on some of these guys from that era, you find some pretty shitty stuff. So what are you talking about? So Linnaeus didn't just classify uh, tropical plants and and beetles and mammals. What he he also, of course, uh, divided the human species into four "quote unquote" natural varieties. Okay, so uh, of course, the pinnacle of beauty and intelligence was Homo sapiens europeus. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, these are the vigorous, muscular. <laughs> Sounds like uh, freaking Zurara all over again. Yeah. yeah, you could just see him like looking at himself in the mirror, trying right. to come up with like these bullet, but, you know, build himself up. Yeah, he's like flexing his pecs and uh, <laughs> and uh, coming up with even better adjectives, bulging chest. Or <laughs> so uh, number two in his uh, hierarchy here was uh, Homo sapiens Americanus, who were uh, ill-tempered and impassive uh, Those are, must be indigenous, right? Yeah, indigenous. people in, in, in the Americas. Then he gets to Homo sapiens Asiaticus, who are melancholy and stern. And then, of course, at the bottom, he gets to Homo sapiens Afer. And I, again, I'm not even going to read his bullshit. These Don't people. you wish we could have a time machine so you can go back and punch these guys in the face? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I, I wish you could, like, you could stay on this side, but there was the portal, and your <laughs> fist would go through, right. hit him in the face while he's flexing his pecs in the <laughs> exactly. mirror. <laughs> yeah, the portal is the mirror. Right? His fist Ow. comes right through. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> you know, Which you, version of humans <laughs> is the fairest of all? Pow. You sort of think, like, these... I'm sure Linnaeus was a really intelligent person, but at the same time, was such an idiot, too. And it just, you know, this is a crazy thing, right? It's like you have sort of a lot of this sort of pseudoscience happening where, again, it ties back to justifying whatever power dominance hierarchy right. you're, you're in right now. <laughs> and, that, that, and that is why we wanted to talk about this watershed moment. The, you know, Zarrar writing this chronicle of Henry the Navigator and creating a racial justification because what it is, you know, race and and all these forms of differentiation that we see is used as a tool for economic exploitation, you know, in maintaining power over those who don't have it. It's about maintaining power for an elite whoever that elite is. Yeah, that's the thread you always follow when you're looking at racism. What are the power dynamics and, and who's exploiting who? Yeah, and it's interesting because even in the U.S. history, we had all these indentured servants that would come over. Very poor Europeans. Right, would like come. in the colonial yes. era before the United States was yes. formed, right? They would basically get sponsored, paid to get over. They, their, their trip would be paid for. Then they'd land somewhere. And next thing you know, they're indebted to somebody and they'd They'd be working for them for a certain period of time. And that, that is different from the chattel slavery of Africans in early U.S. history. But, of course, this becomes now, these become wedge, wedge populations. Like these two folks, the, the indentured servants and the chattel slave, slaves, have a lot in common, right? They're being absurdly exploited. And there are actually historical examples of them organizing together and rioting and, and trying to create, in a sense, their own societies. And they were completely cracked down upon. Yeah, so I think you're right. It's, I think we see often that these are used as wedges. It was used as a wedge mm-hmm. all the way back. Yeah, you know, yeah um, and that's what you still see that today. You know? You're talking about pitting them against each other, right. though, right? Yeah. Like, yes. Uh, somehow you have these indentured servants that are uh, supposed to be made to feel superior to the slaves, and, and so you put them against each other rather than where they should be united against right. the... Right. It, yeah, the system just uh, repeating itself and trying to maintain power. And, and that dynamic has persisted throughout. You know, I think it's probably true in many cultures and, and societies in many ways. But in, in the United States, that dynamic has played out repeatedly. And if you if you sort of fast forward and you look at 
the struggle, the civil rights struggle, you know, for women to um, to get the right to, to vote and for um, for African-Americans to also receive rights to vote and other things after, um, you know, after the Civil War, there were efforts by some basically black women to tie those together, to come together to fight for those rights in tandem. And there are stories of how white suffragettes tried to shut that down. There's a, there's an amazing speech given by Sojourner Truth where she says, ain't I a woman talking about, about mm. this? Yeah, that, uh, that really hits home. I think you, you saw this in, in all of these rights movements. I mean, it, it, when MLK was leading civil rights, he had this uh, kind of evolution of, of his discussion and his speeches where there's the famous one where he said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He kind of broadened out from civil rights for African Americans to poverty and an anti-war stance and sort of realizing it's it's in inequality, it's this exploitation that we need to do away with for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And this this really ties back to a framework that we've talked about before, which is the the notion of cultural materialism that Marvin Harris sort of described, in which infrastructure, so how, the, say, the economic system, the power structures, these sort of things, drives society laws, and uh, that's called, they call the structure, and also the superstructure, or sort of norms and belief systems. And this is, I think, really applicable in this case, where the exploitation of people and, of course, our exploitation of nature is supporting particular structures of, of power and, and the whole sort of system itself. But what we then do, even if, it's, if a, lot of, a lot of people are suffering as a consequence and nature itself is also being exploited horrifically to our long-term detriment, we, we find ways of justifying what is. And a belief system like racial superiority is just one of those. Yeah, I feel like I saw that a fair amount growing up. Like you'd hear some racist expounding on their racist views, but trying to base it in what they see in society around them oh, with yeah. no realization that that's built on this uh, this horrendous history of oppression. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, uh, I'm just going to blame it on the fact that uh, that you have more melanin in your skin. Right. But it's, I think it really is tied to what you're talking about. This is the, the infrastructure that we have now. So my beliefs, uh, I don't want to even say my, whoever <laughs> was saying it, their beliefs are now tied to, to this uh, bogus explanation. Yeah, so correlation without understanding causation. Yeah. yeah. I also, I've had this weird thought recently, just trying to like figure out why do we do this? Why do we take someone who looks different and make them out to be something different? And I, I just been wondering, is it, is there something, are there some innate things about us? And the thing that I got that, you know, I don't know, maybe this means something, maybe it doesn't, but we're such visual creatures. It's very easy to look and say, oh, you, you have darker skin than I do, or you have lighter skin than I do. And I wonder if we have we have a penchant for categorizing things based on visual cues. We also have a penchant for scapegoating that we've talked about a lot in this podcast. Maybe combining those two things uh, sort of makes it 
easy when you when you add to that the cultural materialism piece to for for people to end up in this camp. Yeah, I mean, you can think of plenty of '80s movies where there's like you know the different high school groups and they all have their their different looks about them, right? And they're trying to create this in group sense and out grouping others that are, don't have the same fancy '80s hair or whatever. Or, Aren't wearing the same goth goth clothing or whatever it is. And then right? they like, all come together in detention. Yes, you know, in the Breakfast Club. Yes, and first of all, all get along. If we're gonna, if we're gonna talk about uh, racism in John Hughes, that's a whole nother episode <laughs> that true. we could fill up like that. So that's true. I mean, um, yeah, it's not just we talked about this in our last season. You know, and, and when we talked about hidden drivers, we talked about cognitive biases and these things that are kind of like traits that have developed over our evolutionary history, which are not, by the way, we're not saying are justifications for racism. Right, right. But we're pointing out that it's something that I think we have to be particularly sensitive to, to recognize that there might be a tendency. And and, and I'm particularly concerned, uh, as we're saying before, race is not the only conceptualized source of differentiation that we have. It's one that's deeply embedded in our history. It's deeply, still very deeply embedded in our society I think we're seeing maybe some positive signs of at least awareness of that and a com- more of a conversation, collective conversation about it being systemic. But I'm particularly concerned for all the things that we talk about here on Crazy Town, all the issues that we face, the fact that we're hurtling towards these environmental limits, that we're going to be dealing with with a lot more unraveling of kind of social cohesion and stability and, and norms that in times of, of great stress and uncertainty, you know, you combine that with this tendency for in-group, out-group things and maybe historical patterns of differentiation or just an, an innate way of saying, well, that person looks different than me or behaves differently than me. It's a recipe for really bad shit to happen. Yeah. You know, and I think we have to be really, really vigilant about it. Yeah, we have to focus on what binds us rather than what separates us. And the most important thing is, don't name your kid Zurara. <laughs> yeah. Henry, I think you can get away with. Yeah, or, or Laird McDongle is right. fine. <laughs> and no Linnaeus, okay? No yeah. more Linnaeus. No more Colonel Linnaeus. dipshit is off the table, too. Hey, you guys, we got another good review, this time on the Podchaser app from someone named Cataclysm. Oh. Perfect username for this show, huh? Yep. So Cataclysm says, Crazy Town gives you a podcast where they actually keep thinking about serious issues like energy consumption and overpopulation for an extended period of time without getting distracted by the latest blunders in politics or popular culture. And, unbelievably, it's entertaining to listen to. It is kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. I, I actually, I appreciate that insight because you're right. We we, we try to stay highbrow. Birds <laughs> Have you listened to our podcast? <laughs> uh, cataclysm, thank you. You're right on. You're spot yeah. on with that. Uh, anyway, uh, please follow the cataclysm if you can and write us a review. Thanks. decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. 
Okay, it's pretty clear we're not going to have the recipe for ending racism, but there are a lot of things that we can all try to do to help this situation. And the the very first one, I think, is do some self-work, right? Try to mm-hmm. understand and study the history, sort of like what we've been doing in, in preparation for discussing this. And if you're like us, uh, you know, if, if you happen to be uh, like, like in the United States, white and privileged, try to figure out what that means, uh, where, where you can step back and shut up and let others uh, lead the way and, and basically not exploit that privilege and, and, and continue that. I really had a, uh, a tough moment. I, I moved to Oregon and was utterly unaware of its sordid racist history. I mean, you know, anywhere you go in the United States, you could probably find a, a good sordid uh, racist story. But Oregon was particularly bad with sunset laws, uh, basically expelling people of color from, yeah. uh, from you know, its municipalities. And you see the effects today, just the demographics. I think Portland's the whitest big city in the country. It, you know, it, th- these things linger on. So I think having a, a good sense of that history and really recognizing the power dynamics that have flowed from that is is a really good starting point. In the case of Oregon, it's not just history. We still have a lot of white supremacist yeah. groups around. It's it's definitely part of the dynamic. Yeah, 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 for sure. I had this really interesting experience when my great-grandfather was getting on an age. You know, it was a typical thing where the families spread out and they're all in their careers. And so what you do, if you've got enough money and he had saved enough is you hire helpers, right? And people start, this woman started coming into the house to clean up, cook for him, make sure he got his meds, etc. And then it really developed a real relationship where as he got more and more needy, she became kind of his full-time helper. And eventually he bought a house that, she and her husband and two kids lived in with him. Hmm. And when he passed, that was their house. He basically bought it for them. And uh, he just became part of their family. Now, what's fascinating to me is they, they were an immigrant family from Latin America. And I remember him talking to me, maybe one of the last conversations I had with him, and he's very reflective of the time. And he was basically saying, you know, I spent most of my life as a racist. Hmm. I, I really looked down on people like, like, like this. And he was in tears, and he was, he was acknowledging that and how, how sad he was that he didn't recognize how wonderful these folks or any, any human can be and how loving and how he saw how they lived together and how, how they treated each other and how they cared for him. And I was just like floored. Yeah. So I think there is, a, there, there is opportunities for anybody to um, to change like that. That that's a really sweet story, Jason. Because I thought you were going to go kind of like to this place that you see uh, the rest of the family was really upset because they didn't get the money and he gave it to the caregiver. But oh, it's no, not, nobody, it's not that at all. So I'm at like, all, no, no. That, that is that's a really good example. We thought it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's a really good example of what we're talking about, like reckoning with your own stuff and your own views and and trying to get to the bottom of it and giving up some privilege yeah Yeah. right i mean i think there's there's a lot of individual sort of internal work and behavioral work that all of us um, who are in a situation where we benefited from white privilege 
to recognize our own prejudices, think about our own behaviors and, and our contribution, how we continue to contribute to a system. Yeah. Um, e- even through silence. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's true. And not everyone is in a position to to do things to try to rebalance in a sense. But if you are, like your grandfather, I mean, that was a that was a major uh, a major gesture, which obviously was not done from a racial lens or something, right? This was right. done because he had a relationship. And yeah, I think that's the that's the whole point. I guess I would add in, in thinking about uh, doing the opposite, and it's so it's not so much of doing the opposite, but it's a going further, right? So I think what we're seeing right now, and I see it as a positive step for sure, is is a movement to kind of address legacy stuff, right? Statues, the names on buildings, the names of roads, the, you know, whatever it is. I am glad you brought this up. I love this stuff. I Seriously, we live in this matrix of yeah. names and, and, mm-hmm. and monuments and stuff. And, and you grew up in the South, so you... Yeah, so yeah. There, there's been three examples in, in very recent history that, that have kind of blown me away and that I'm, I'm going to share with you guys. So one... A few years ago, I took this civil disobedience course, and the the teacher of it, she had put all these cool historic photos, like MLK speaking at at the Lincoln Memorial, and, and a bunch of other photos up on the wall. And at some point, she said, "Go take one of these photos, pick pick your favorite, and and then you know explain why you like it." And I saw this one of this woman, uh, who it turns out her name is Bree Newsom. And she was on top of this flagpole in front of the South Carolina Capitol, tearing the Confederate flag down. I mm. think this happened about five years ago. And uh, I was like, what a, what a badass. Yeah. Like, yeah. She just uh, went there, climbed it. She knew she was going to get arrested. And she was probably trying not to be harmed in the process. But really awesome, direct, like, I- I'm taking down this symbol of oppression and I'm going to pay the price for it. I, that's one example. Another, when I lived in the D.C. area, there was a, a point uh, where I was living in Virginia just off of Lee Highway, mm. which, of course, named after Robert E. Lee. And that's just been changed to Langston Boulevard, which is interesting mm. in the crazy town perspective for, you know, from from this show about racism, where it goes from Robert E. Lee to uh, John Langston, who was the first African-American from Virginia to be elected to Congress, mm. but also from highway to boulevard, because they sort of wanted it to be more like a main street uh, than have this uh, super highway type name. So yeah, it's kind of a little two-piece uh, bonus, bonus piece there. Okay. The third thing that's really got me amped up is I uh, live most of the time in Portland now, and I'm pretty close to Mount Tabor, which is this, it used to be the, a big part of the water infrastructure of the city. Now it's a park, so it's got forested, uh, extinct volcano. and That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it's a neat, neat spot. You get out in the woods in the middle of the city, and right at the top of it, there was this monument to a guy named Harvey Scott who was the chief editor or the head of the Oregonian newspaper Hmm. way back in the day. And famously, he was against women's suffrage and kind of one of these... uh, Assholes. Yeah, white guy douchebags. He probably read Zurara's book or some shit, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, a lot of people didn't like that, that this is the monument that's sort of looming over the city. And uh, at some point, it got torn down. 
And so then you just had this blank pedestal that was sitting there for a while. And finally, a sculptor actually put a new bust up on this pedestal, and it was of York. And York was a person who had been enslaved, and he was a member of the Lewis and Clark right. party. Right, oh, wow. I remember reading about York. Yeah, yeah. so huh. they, uh-huh. he was in the, He was a, a an inter, integral member. Like he was really good at taking care of people who got sick. He was good at hunting and just a you know full on. Wilderness explorer, yeah, world is badass. yeah going across badass. the continent. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, after the mission was successful, he asked Clark if he could have his freedom, and Clark refused. Oh God! Because uh, maybe he read Zurara too. I don't know what the what the hell's wrong with people. But anyway, this bust of York went up there. And while I was looking into this, uh, I I found out another fact that just freaking blew my mind. So this this the original statue of Harvey Scott was sculpted by Gutzon Borglum, who it turns out is the guy that made the, uh, the, the, the giant base relief Confederate monument, biggest Confederate monument in the world at frickin' Stone Mountain, oh, right. oh, yeah, where I grew up, yeah. with Robert E. Lee Jefferson Davis and, and uh, whoever the last, Lord McDonagall, <laughs> uh, Stonewall Jackson was right. up there. Laird, Laird. And, uh, yeah, sorry. It just, oh, this guy. I, yeah. I can't stand it. G- Gutzon Borglum. So he like, he carved out a niche for himself yeah. for making statues of the most reprehensible people I, in I the think US. he had this huge white supremacist agenda and nice. carved it into the freaking landscape. I think we should name a venereal disease after that yeah. dude. Um, I got, I got Gutzon. Yeah. Gutzon yeah. Borglum. <laughs> Gutzonditis Borglatitis of the <laughs> testicles or something. Yeah. So it's it's an ongoing drama, actually, because then the York bust was torn no, down. No, ah. no. So the city, I think, is trying to figure out uh, what it wants to do. It's still, right now, it's an empty pedestal. And uh, mm-hmm. I say, take it all out. Let's just let's just have it be nature and then yeah. be done. But, but I, I, I wouldn't mind having the York statue back. Yeah. So, but my point was... All these things, I think, are really positive signs. I, I am supportive. But I would, I would challenge us to go further, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I worry that these kinds of changes, changing the names of schools, changing the names of streets, taking down statues, um, it, it could be easy to sort of rest on your laurels and say, uh, you know, pat yourself on the back and say, yeah. we've, we've made this, this correction, you know. Right. But a true reckoning... And I think there's an argument to be made that we shouldn't kind of erase our history because we need to grapple with it. But beyond that, it's more about let's get to the true legacy of these people. You know, it's not the fact that they have a name on a building. Right. It's it's their direct impact and their collective impact of a system that continues to further exploit and generate completely unequal results for people so we have to get to the true sources of this injustice like the of tax racism. code tax i mean i mean for god's sakes if as much time was spent on the tax code as we spent on this stuff right. maybe there be a difference by now so we need to get to the the economic yes roots the the systemic roots of these things and we need to play i think you you talked about this rob where when we look at our own behavior sometimes that behavior is complacency it's silence I think we need to take it upon ourselves to say that splintering of identities or somehow trying to, I don't know, say, you know, this group has got a worse off than this group or whatever. 
we need to see that all of this differentiation and exploitation is about maintaining power for an elite group of people. So we need to come together in a sense to get to the to the source of all of that. Yeah. And if all this fails, uh, work on inventing that time machine so you can punch Zurar in the face. <laughs> Please. And if you do, let me know. Yeah. I'll be the first to sign. Yeah, up. he'll 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 be a test a test pilot. <laughs> Absolutely. We want to give a special thanks to Ilana Zuber, our star researcher of the watershed moments through history. Without her work, there's no way we could have covered such sweeping topics this season. Yeah, and we also want to thank our other outstanding volunteers. Anya Steyer provides original artwork for us, and Taylor Antal prepares the transcripts for each episode. And a big, big thank you to our producer, Melanie Travers, who helps us bozo stay professional. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. If you want to help others find their way to Crazy Town, please drop us a five-star rating and hit that share button when you hear an episode you like. Hey, guys. Amazing, amazing sponsor this week. This is something I've been looking for and some people have stepped up. I'm talking about the Metaverse Sustainability Coalition. And uh, Oops, be- sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, in the Metaverse, we cannot afford to repeat the same mistakes we made in the universe. We need sustainable development and communities. We need walkable towns, local food, less consumerism waste, plus equity. This is a big one, guys. It is very concerning to all of us who are watching the development of the Metaverse that is already full of shopping centers, high-priced NFT art, and luxury brands, and that a scarcity mentality and aggressive private property rights, the same old investment class, is excited about making a financial killing of this. We desperately need the fine work being done by the Metaverse Sustainability Coalition to fight for us and a better fake world to protect the commons and make a more equitable metaverse for all to enjoy. Crazy town. Da, 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 crazy town.